A heavily armed Clark County man is arrested on his way to a California gay pride parade. How did he get past Indiana authorities? The candidates for governor talk jobs, Democrats push a plan for statewide pre-K, and Indiana Republicans fill out their ticket. That, plus immigration reform at the State House, Kanye West, and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending June 17, 2016. <music> Programming is made possible by Ice Miller. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, hours after a terror attack in a gay bar in Orlando, an Indiana man was arrested near Los Angeles with an arsenal of weapons and the makings of a bomb. Police say James Wesley Howell of Jeffersonville was heading to the gay pride parade in West Los Angeles. After his arrest, the chief probation officer in Clark County said Howell didn't have permission to leave Indiana. He pleaded guilty in April to a misdemeanor intimidation charge and is on probation. Clark County Prosecutor Jeremy Mole says it's part of a deal they cut with Howell based on the quality of witnesses in the case. We put them in a courtroom uh, and uh, had to prove our case based on those those people and their statements that there was a good chance that we might have a difficulty getting a conviction. Well, I think they should trump if uh, they are what I've been told they are uh, with weapons and explosive devices, that sort of thing. And that's a reference to the California charges. Did Indiana authorities fail to investigate James Howell properly? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat and Delaney. Republican Mike McDaniel. John Schwannis, the host of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Wish TV State House reporter Jim Shella. And Delaney, how did Howell get out of Indiana with all those weapons? Well, it's a total it's a total screw up on the part of all the locals involved in this. I mean it I don't second-guess the plea agreement, okay? The prosecutor looked at that, decided what he had to do. But he was supposed to forfeit his weapons as part of that probation, at least for a year. And you obviously had different arms of local government not talking to each other about the number of weapons he had. If they'd read the prior police reports on this, they would know he had multiple weapons. He only turned in one. They were investigating him for a child molest and apparently talked to him about that and then didn't put him under arrest? Guess what happens then? He flees. I mean, there are so many things that went wrong with this. You know, the first question is, what is he doing with an assault weapon to begin with? And then the second question is, where are the cracks in our system uh, and the investigation in our system that allows somebody as dangerous as this guy to do and, and be stopped in, in, in L.A. just kind of serendipity. I mean, if that old gentleman hadn't been looking out his window and called 911, it could have been horrific. And friends of Howell are saying, I'm not surprised. Uh, it, it, they knew there were, were problems here. Well, uh, on top of everything Ann said, that was absolutely correct. I mean, her analysis of this is on target. Uh, this, is, this is a situation where this young man had anger issues reported before this. 
So when you add anger issues to child molestation, to a problem of pointing a gun at a neighbor, and if you don't connect those dots under that circumstance in this day and age, then you're really asking for trouble. So there's got to be an extra alert about that kind of thing, people with guns, with anger issues, and all the other things that went with this. And she's right. If they would just read each of the reports involved, they would have known he had more than the handgun that he relinquished. And so this is we are so lucky that this young man didn't do what he intended to do out there, uh, and it just would have been horrific for the for the country. So, John, do you expect that somebody will go back through this and try to figure out where things fell through the cracks? And if so, who would do that? Oh, I think it's a given that people will go back and, and look at that. I think you could, uh, a number of possibilities, uh, media organizations, uh, uh, government, good government advocacy groups, uh, future political opponents. Um, uh, there's a lot of people who, uh, when these sorts of tragedies occur or near tragedy, uh, and there uh, is uh, apparently a crack in the system, and we've seen it before. A crack. Uh, well, uh, yeah. Several. And uh, it's like inevitable that there will be, uh, you know, a, a reevaluation, a reassessment of what took place, and I think in all likelihood, a, an attempt, a sincere attempt, to try to plug the gap. The, the, the sad thing is, in, in the criminal justice system, there's no way to prevent 100% of bad people from getting no, out it, and doing potentially it, it, bad that's things. That's absolutely true, but when you have somebody who's convicted right. and on probation, that right. ought to be able to be right. stopped. Sure, sure. You know, I, I would hope that the General Assembly would look at this again, too. We've had a, a shift in the mentality, and I think rightly so, to try to get people who are uh, not uh, violent or um, uh, lesser offenders out of the system either at all or sooner. But that means that we have to have a good community correction system. I think it needs to be investigated. I think they need to decide whether or not they have to bolster the spending on that. I mean, it's not, it's not that you can just reduce the cost of the prisons. Uh, you have to meet the need of uh, keeping an eye on folks who are potentially dangerous like this guy is. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that, that I have the answer, but I would hope that in turn, to your question about investigation, I hope the General Assembly would look at this very hard and look at the system again and see if they are adequately funding community corrections. We've seen, we've seen this in a variety of issues as it relates to different government agencies not communicating with each other properly or not communicating at all. Uh, and the state judiciary has been trying to do just that here. For years. For, for years, and they've made great progress in the last 10 years at least. And they're working with law enforcement on a variety of things so that you can go into the system and check immediately on somebody's background and record. But... <laughs> But still, you've got to get that down to where the rubber hits the road, and you get it low enough to where you can really find out what's going on at the local level. That's going to take some more work to do. It's going to take more money, too, yeah, because too. you're going to have no to have question. one system whereby when you enter that data, everybody yeah. who needs to have the information That's part of the problem it. now is there's more than one system. That's right. So you want to find the balance between protecting the public, punishing bad people, but you don't want to throw away, as John suggested, the work of uh, the, have pushed maybe the state toward community corrections, toward other solutions. You look at what happened when Alan Matheny was uh, killed his ex, ex-wife during early in the Biden administration, right. and the pendulum swung pretty too quickly far. too far. I don't think there was another uh, release no. granted of that type, uh, right. good behavior release or work release, whatever it was called, in the entire administration thereafter. 
And, and that doesn't necessarily work either in terms of dealing with a crowded prison system. Time now for viewer feedback. Each, each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, did Indiana authorities fail to scrutinize James Wesley Howell properly? Your choices are A, yes, B, you can only do so much, or C, thank goodness he was caught in California. Last week's question, how would you describe Donald Trump's remarks about Judge Curiel? 68% said racist, 11% said misconstrued, 21% said mind-boggling. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org slash iwir and look for the poll. To the race for governor now, where the candidates were talking about jobs this week. The governor presided over an announcement by Determine Incorporated, a software company from Silicon Valley in California. Our corporate headquarters... Uh, is moving to Carmel, Indiana, official today. Mike Pence says it's an example of how his policies have been successful. Determined could have gone anywhere in the country, frankly, anywhere in the world, uh, to locate their global headquarters for this global company, and they chose Indiana. John Gregg unveiled a 35-point plan to create more new jobs and in the process said that Mike Pence is out of step with the business community because of his social agenda. The number one issue I still hear about is discrimination. Uh, we've got to do something to restore and rebuild Indiana's reputation. It's a position that comes with campaign promises. And I will commit, as I have done during this whole campaign, to repeal RIFRA. I will sign the very first day an executive order on LGBT rights for state employees and contractors. But back at that Carmel Jobs announcement, it was the governor who condemned the attack on the LGBT community in Orlando. So I'd just like to encourage a moment of silence. Afterward, Pence was asked if his position on LGBT rights has changed. My heart goes out to the members of the LGBT community in Orlando. And that's all he would say. Mike McDaniel, can Mike Pence avoid having every jobs debate turn into a gay rights discussion? Yes. Uh, actually, the number one question on the minds of employers is whether or not we have enough people skilled enough to do the jobs that are coming to Indiana. That's the issue that comes up over and over again. And I, I have to tell you that if, if John Gregg and company are going to make jobs an issue in this campaign, the Pence administration must be thrilled about that idea because they are on track right now to have record years for the fourth consecutive year in a row, higher than even what the Daniels administration did. The economy, as the headline in the Star read last or this week, was their economy sitting on all its cylinders. Uh, this is a great record on jobs, and if they're going to make this a hallmark of the campaign, then they need to bring it on. I read John's uh, program, 35 points, 14 pages, looking for what they're going to do differently that was going to make a difference in the quality of the jobs we bring. And all they're doing is basically rearranging things that are already there. There wasn't a single thing in there that was going to be different and change the way we go after and bring oh, jobs in. Well, that's not true. That, that, true. Exactly. that could have been a page and a half okay. instead of 14. State unemployment rates down again today. Five, yeah, and when you look at five. the New York Times and the federal government report on this, we are lagging behind every one of the adjacent states in job growth and the national average. 
and lagging behind by a factor of, uh, I think, 50% or more. So, I mean, their record is not good. That whole announcement up there, they're going to create 24 jobs by 2019 from a company who lost so much money in California that they're looking for a way to save money, and that's why they move here, not because of the jobs. John is exactly right about RIFRA, and it isn't enough to have the moment of silence. If you want to make a statement about, about LGBT people and being citizens and having equal protection, you give it to them and stop the discrimination, and Mike Pence ought to do that. He did kind of walk himself into a corner there, didn't he? Well, he, um, he certainly let his guard down, and, and um, when the question was asked, he acted the same way he did when he was on television with George Stephanopoulos. He really didn't answer the question directly. I think that the governor has to decide uh, exactly where he stands on this issue and, uh, and make that known. Um, because, you know, I, I think Mike, he can get past it, but I think he has to, uh, he has to address it straight on and um, make a definitive answer one way or the other um, because this uh, habit that he has of fainting one way or the other um, has not worked for him at this point and it just keeps the issue a, a, a top of mind. And people will keep it top of mind because if you look at uh, the economy in Indiana, even though the numbers are the best they've been in, in, in a long time, and even though it may be hitting on all cylinders, there's still an, an anxiety in many sectors of the Indiana uh, populace uh, about job uncertainty, about economic, Wages their futures, uh, how to fund their children's college educations, the debt that may, that may incur. And so uh, that is still an issue, and I think John Gregg recognizes that and needs to deal with it. But what's, what I think is in this for the Gregg uh, campaign and why he'll continue to bring it up is he also sees the RIFRA debate as a weakness a vulnerability for Mike Pence. I don't expect him so to you, back off. So you that. get no. you get a twofer. You say, yeah. you know, Jobs is my if you're John Gregg, Jobs is my my goal, my number one priority. And but and at the same time I can bring in this other issue that I see as a vulnerability. All right, yeah. it, All right. still with the race for, for governor. Itself. State school superintendent Glenda Ritz teamed up with John Gregg this week to push for statewide pre kindergarten classes. They visited an early education class in Lawrence to talk about plans for pre clay pre-K classes in every school district. That compares with the governor's plan to expand pre-K for disadvantaged students. Greg promised to seek federal funds, but said the state can afford his plan without help from Washington. Here's Ritz, followed by Greg. So we've estimated that it really will cost less than 1% of our state's budget to offer pre-K. We fully think at least 70% of the students over time will be in it. We welcome a broad range of voices uh, calling for a responsible expansion of uh, early childhood education. And that's the governor suggesting that the Democratic plan is not a responsible one. John Ketzenberger, can he convince voters that his plan makes more sense? Well, I think he can make uh, he can make a couple of claims here uh, legitimately. One, he is the first governor who's able to get this through the General Assembly. So while it's been a priority for a while, um, he's the first one to get it enacted. Um, he also has to live with the fact that uh, he told the federal government he didn't want $80 million. Um, the Greg Ritz plan... That he suddenly wants. Right. The Greg Ritz, Ritz plan um, estimates it for $150 million a year. Uh, they'd be able to fund pre-K throughout the uh, state for all students. Well, uh, they, say, they say that they expect that about 50% would take which advantage is, so, of that by 2020. Which so, is what other states who have done this uh, voluntarily have. The experience have. that they have, right. And that's the other thing here is, 
you know, the governor has taken a slow, steady approach, but this is not new. I mean, this is something that's well known and well understood. Um, so I think that it's it, the governor can make a claim, but I think that the claim by Greg and Ritz is equally strong, and we'll see who decides. It's stronger. Well, interesting too to see them working together. An interesting uh, series of events here. She said she was for it. Greg said he was for it. And now we've got a joint appearance. It is interesting because at one time they both were seeking the same job in terms of uh, uh, the the gubernatorial nomination, at least for a period of time. And as far as I know, this is the first at least high-profile event where they came together in this this fashion and joined hands. But I think it makes good political sense for them to do that. I mean, they, they do seem to be in agreement on this issue, and it's an important issue. Uh, it's one on which Hoosiers of all partisan stripes uh, can, can agree that early childhood education is important. We can worry about the funds, but it is, it is, it is fundamentally important to a lot of Hoosiers. We've, so we've mentioned here before, we've mentioned here before there's at least one poll that shows 82% in support of this. With that kind of public support out there to say uh, we only need to do this for disadvantaged kids, is that a tough sell? Well, it's not a tough sell when the public gets the whole story. The $150 million, the big lie of the week, okay? Uh, because it's $6,800 a person right or per child right now for the uh, pilot program. And they estimate 80,000 people per class. You do 80,000 times six, six, let's say $6,000. That's what, $480 million? And that's for one class. So if you did it for fourth, four-year-olds, for, that's 480. If you do it for three-year-olds, that's 960. Well, only talking now you're talking about, and they're talking about 150 million. That's one of the big scams of all time. Yeah. They can't do it for that. And second, people won't be willing to pay for it or won't say they're for it. Be, uh, if they have people that can afford to do it themselves, they're not going to spend that kind of there are money. A lot of, there are a lot of working class people that are struggling to get preschool for their children because they know how valuable it is. LSA said that with 100% participation, the price tag is $250 million, not your 490 well, That's what the fiscal and, leadership says. And the $250 million envisions 100% participation. When the experience of other states where it's voluntary, the range is between 50 and 55% participation. So your numbers you are way off. You can't do it for $6,000 Your numbers are way off, and it, there are a lot of savings that, that Glenda Ritz and John Gregg have identified in terms, <laughs> in terms of what you have to do to kids coming into kindergarten who are not ready for that's kindergarten. That's the second part of the education programs seldom unfold in the manner that they are devised. And I use as an example the voucher program, which was going to save right. the oh, yeah, state of yeah, Indiana yeah. money. Right. So it, it does. Didn't, it, it does. Does, it does because not. it costs less to it do does that than does the sin. Moving does on. Not Moving on. Indiana Republicans filled out the 2016 ticket this week. Jennifer McCormick is the nominee for state school superintendent, and Curtis Hill is the nominee for attorney general. Governor Mike Pence, of course, leads the ticket. My fellow Republicans, I'm Mike Pence. I am the governor of Indiana, and we are one. John Schwannis, what's the most surprising result from the GOP convention? Uh, 
Well, you look at the that race uh, went three ballots uh, and for you attorney had, general. For attorney general, and uh, I mean that was an interesting race because you had Steve Carter, who was a former right. office holder in that position. Uh, Randy uh, you Head, had Randy a Head, who was a, a well-known, well-regarded yeah. state senator, who would put a lot of uh, effort into this uh, this yeah. effort, this campaign. So I think that would probably be the more uh, surprising of the two races. The other one was right. was pretty much a slam dunk on the first ballot. So. Big win for Jennifer McCormick against a Tea Party opponent. That's interesting in itself. Well, the conventional wisdom holds that the conservative, uh, more conservative elements of the party uh, turn out or are a bigger player in this, uh, these kinds of state convention scenario. Uh, and she didn't have any trouble at all. Um, and so, you know, that could be cast as a surprise as well. Strong yeah. ticket. I mean, she's a former Democrat. That's why she did as well as she did. But, but, you know, (laughs) I I don't think anyone knows either one of them, frankly. And and when you have an attorney general candidate who says that federal incursion in Indiana is the biggest single issue that we face, I think he's a little out of touch with reality. This is an outstanding ticket. Curtis Hill is a, is a great candidate for attorney general and will be very aggressive about his campaign. And Jennifer McCormick may be the best qualified candidate we've ever had for a superintendent. All right, but moving on. Donald Trump wants to build a wall between Mexico and the U.S. to stop rapists and murderers from entering our country. But a state senate committee heard this week that illegal immigrants commit few crimes in Indiana. Captain David Allender told lawmakers about a 2015 drug bust. It involved a gang that was selling meth, heroin, and cocaine. Two of the members were illegal immigrants. Police confiscated drugs and more than a million dollars. It's not uncommon, Allender said, for them to encounter drugs from Mexico. Most of the meth we get here, about 85 percent according to the crime lab, is produced in Mexico. But he also pointed out that illegal immigrants make up just over 2% of the state prison population. So it's not a uh, large percentage. Matter of fact, it's underrepresented for the number of people that are here. And to the apparent surprise of committee chairman Mike Delf, Allender said that the law denying driver's licenses to illegal immigrants is misguided. That hurt us as, as police officers. He said any ID is better than no ID when solving crimes. You're saying from a public safety standpoint and maybe even a national security standpoint, this may be a smart thing for the state of Indiana to consider. Is that accurate? Yes, sir. But let's go back to that drug bust and the fact that drugs and drug dealers came from Mexico. Allender said the real problem is the drug customers. If we remove the illegals, we still have drugs? Probably. And Delaney, is that a good reason to leave immigration reform to Congress? Yeah, I mean, this is just the same dog whistle approach of some of the Tea Party Republicans. They want to say immigrants are, uh, or illegal immigrants, probably immigrants in general, are responsible for every problem this country faces. This is, again, a solution in, uh, in, in search of a problem. And Mike Delph ought to admit that, leave the issue alone, and, and obviously give driver's license to illegal aliens. Well, Senator Dolph said that, that the, the problem he thinks with, with uh, giving driver's licenses is that some of these people will lie. But the police say that even if, if, even if they did lie, we then have a photograph. We can right. do a lineup. We have some place to start. As yeah. we've talked about before, this all comes out of the frustration that a lot of states have about problems that are associated with illegal immigration. And it is a federal problem, and anything they can do, they can only nibble around the edges, if you will, 
And so I think it's very difficult to do anything that's going to be meaningful on this as a result. Yeah. It, uh, Farm Bureau had somebody testify there who said that 52% of farm workers in this country are right. illegal right. immigrants. Right. Um, is that a problem? Because, um, because what, what we're hearing is most of those people come here to work, not to cause trouble. Well, I think uh, the reason the Farm Bureau, uh, their presence is telling. The, uh, the issue is that uh, this state and many others depend on, on agriculture uh, for a large portion of, of income and revenue, that, uh, and tax revenue, I should point out. Yeah. And it needs and to get from the field to the supermarket, and um, the workforce that is doing that now, as you suggest, well, Jim, and, and, and if it were removed, it would be a very, be, very be bad situation your grocery for prices agribusiness are going in Indiana. Up. Well, but your grocery prices are going up. Well, well they go up a lot more if, yeah. if they were... We're talking about perishable items that have a very short life, and they need to have that workforce. Um, there needs to be a solution, and they need to find it quickly at the federal level. Finally, hip-hop artist Kanye West is launching his first tour in three years with a concert here in Indianapolis. West plans 30 tour stops beginning on August 25th at Banker's Life Fieldhouse. He is scheduled to play multiple dates in New York, Chicago, Detroit, and Los Angeles. The tour supports his Life of Pablo album, which came out in February. Mike McDaniel, why Indianapolis? Well, uh, first of all, I, I spoke with Marty Bechtold and his people at uh, Page Sports and Entertainment today about this, and they, this is a major coup for them to get this to start here because the inter deal. international media will be here because it's the first concert on this mm -hmm. tour, and the attention this is going to bring to Indianapolis is going to be phenomenal. This is going to be a very, very tough ticket, and uh, good for them. I, at Banker's Life, they've had Justin Bieber, and they're bringing Coldplay in. I mean, they've had a big summer sure. at Banker's Life. Yep. Field and the Kardashians may come. Well, you know, and I, I don't know if there's any truth to the rumor that, that Kim Kardashian is the possible running mate for Donald Trump. They have a lot in common. <laughs> the celebrity bit, the morality bit, you know, they might fit in perfectly. But huh. if Kanye is running for president, wouldn't that create a conflict? Well, it's a little though? late for him to run for president. No, I think he's been running for this a year. Tour, or two, this maybe. tour might conflict. Yeah. You know, it's, um, yeah. it's a big deal. It Jim, is. are you going to be sitting front and center? Probably not. That's Indiana Week in Review <laughs> for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike McDaniel, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir or starting Monday. You can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity or Bright House Networks. I'm Jim Shella of Wish TV. We'll see you again next week. Programming is made possible by Ice Miller. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.